So just before I introduce um, our uh, guest speaker this morning, just a couple of things I want to just uh, to update you on. We just want to continue to encourage you with our fasting initiative that we started back when our lead pastor, Derwin Gray, and his wife, Angel, uh, left for sabbatical. We have just been uh, really committing ourselves to praying. We want to encourage you with your God stories. We want to encourage you with your what's God's doing through those opportunities to pray and trust God for what he's doing. Uh, uh, we want to encourage you to send in those God stories to info at hillside.ca so we can be able to capture some of those. We need to be encouraged. And um, speaking of a God story, um, and I don't have a lot of time to get into this, the specifics, but I have the opportunity this morning to introduce to you, for the first time, our new administrator. Last week, we said goodbye to Holly, and we're going to miss her dearly, but this week, we're going to introduce to you, for the first time, Trudy Lewis. Trudy's over here. Just give her a warm welcome. Now, as I say, th this is a God story, and um, we ju just to see how God has orchestrated this journey that has brought Trudy to Hillside to just connect with this whole opportunity. There has been a need that's been presented, and uh, Trudy comes with uh, extensive experience in corporate uh, administration. She has also worked in small businesses. Uh, so she understands a lot of both the large and the small picture. She loves God, and she wants to serve you guys. So let's uh, just really uh, be gracious to her, uh, be patient, as she has a huge learning curve in terms of understanding uh, the ins and outs of, of Hillside. And so uh, certainly a God story that we want to celebrate and look forward to what she's and what God's going to do through her. Now, there's... It's amazing what happens in terms of what, how a Sunday morning takes place. I have seen the beehive of activity that takes place of volunteers take, putting chairs out. We have the opportunity to see volunteers of what happens down in the Sunday school. There are just some very, very specific areas that need to be filled and are filled. But one uh, particular need that has become, I'm become aware of that really actually needs attention immediately it's actually cleaning linen, taking them home, washing it, and bringing it back every week. That someone who's been doing this for years now has been Judy Chevalier, if I've got the pronunciation right. And she, due to health reasons, no, no longer can do that. But what she's been doing is that if we have an event, if we have communion, if we have alpha, whatever's going on, she takes the linen, she takes it home, she washes it, irons it, and brings it back. So it's all ready to go the next week. We need someone that would take up that particular uh, cause and do that. We have a communion next week, and I know that there's linen sitting in the uh, area just by the office that needs to be taken home, cleaned, prepared for next week. So if you uh, sense that that's something that you would want to do, I would welcome you to come and see me at the info booth at the end of the service. So... I want to introduce you to the speaker. Um, the per person I'm going to be introducing this morning has served, uh, has uh, tended Hillside as a, as a ch child with his family, served on the worship team and youth ministry, graduated from Terry Fox, went on to get his English degree at SFU. In his early high, high school years, God really got a hold of his life, and he began the journey of ministry that has evolved into producing and hosting two Alpha Youth film projects. Since the launch of the first Alpha Youth project in 2013, it has reached over 49 countries and has been translated into 19 different languages. He is married to his wife, Rachel. They have three lovely children. And um, I have the honor and the privilege this morning to not only introduce to you as his as a guest speaker, but I'm proud to introduce to him, you to him as my I see I can't even get that right, I'm so nervous. 
I'm so proud to be able to introduce him to you as my son, Jason Ballard. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, hey guys, it's good to be with you. You doing all right? You good? It's good to be in church. It's good to be alive, good to be breathing. Haven't been here for a while. You guys are better looking than you were 10 years ago. It's probably all the newcomers, the people have come recently. Just bump the average up a little bit. Just kidding. You guys have always been so good looking. Um, my name is Jason. I'm a pastor in Langley at a church called CLA. It's my primary vocation. And uh, I love doing that right now. The particular emphasis of my work is overseeing our preteens, our youth, and our young adult ministries, which I love doing. So we've got teams that look after those different groups. And so right now, at what time is it? It's 1040. I scheduled this so well. You guys are going to think I'm just so smart. Right now, there's 200 high school students and 50 volunteers all meeting at ferries, and my volunteers are coordinating all that. I'm just here just to hang out with you guys. This is easy. There's a whole mess happening at BC Ferries right now as we try to take this herd, this, I don't know, if, if, a herd is probably the most appropriate descriptive word of these, of these students onto this ferry, and we go over, we rent this ghetto Bible camp called Couch and River Bible Camp, and we rent it for two weeks, and so we'll do a high school camp for the next five days. I'm going over right after this, so I'm going to grab the ferry right after. We're going to do high school for five nights. Nights, and then we'll have a young adult weekend. Uh, we'll have a bunch of our young adults there, and then we'll do a preteen camp. So my family and I, we've got three kids, Hudson, who's five, Mary, who's three, Millie, who's one, and my wife, Rachel. We're just like, we're going to try to move as much of our house. Last night, I was trying to figure out if I could get my air conditioner in our van. It didn't fit. Um, I'm just trying to think, how much of our house can we get there for the next? And we're going to have to be, in, it, it's, it's just going to be, you pray for us. It's awesome. But the ministry at camp, anyone who's been impacted by camp ministry knows lives are changed at camps. You know, people build community and relationship, and the Holy Spirit works. And um, This morning, what I want to do, I know you guys have been in a series in the parables this summer. Um, I'm going to just take a pause on the parable series and draw our attention to just one passage of Scripture in Psalm 73. So if you've got your Bible, or if you've got a phone or internet connection, just go to Psalm 73. Josiah at the back has prepared the full text. We'll read it all the way through from beginning to end. We'll go through the whole thing. And um, it's a bit of a lengthy read, but we'll just get through it, and then that'll set the foundation. And what we'll try to do is flip over some of the rocks within the text and see what it might speak to us this morning. Before we dive into that, I'm just trying to think how I can um, do any sort of justice to my experience here at Hillside. Um, my most formative years, my walk with God as a preteen into the high school student happened in the context of my relationships that were kind of moving in and through this church building. And uh, some of my best friends, I was chatting this morning with one of my buddies from high school. You know, he just said, hey, Ballard, what's going on? He just wanted to give me an update on some stuff. And he was one of the buddies who became a Christian in this youth group. And he's on a long list of people who are still following Jesus today and raising family and kids and making meaningful contributions through their professional work. Many of them called into ministry because, you know, because something that happened here. And I just have endless stories some of them are too inappropriate to share. Um, that just, I, I remember as I walk through this, this church building, but one of the most, um, the thing that's most filling my imagination right now, I just sort of walked around and tried to peek and see how the building's changed in the last 10 years or so. As I walked downstairs, um, we used to do a, um, a Friday morning prayer gathering uh, downstairs in the basement. And it, was, it wasn't just a hillside thing, it was, it was a citywide thing or a Tri-Cities initiative. And it was probably about 10, 15 different youth pastors and youth leaders from different churches and maybe another 10, 15 high school students that would meet on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. to pray. And so some of the youth leaders from this church, my friend Ben Woodman, his sister Tara, a guy called Matt Lunt, they would pick me up on different weeks and I'd get picked up at my house at maybe 5.45 and I would just be so exhausted. And they drive me through a Tim Hortons drive-through, and we drive up the hill, and we go into this room, and there are other youth leaders and other students praying. And I remember falling asleep most Friday mornings on the floor in that basement. And that experience of waking up early to see other students from other schools with other youth leaders praying, not that our church would grow, but that God would bring renewal to the city. It's a much better vision than trying to see a church grow, is to see a city renewed. Amen? 
I mean, this vision, of, like I know, I know you guys get this, but the vision of city renewal, that God will move in all the high schools, then all the churches, through all the neighborhoods, is the kind of vision that's compelling, and that was shaped and formed in those moments downstairs in the basement. And so lots of stories that come to mind. I'm back in September or October or November, whenever they have me booked next, I'm back with you guys. I think they, maybe they probably are going to decide after this session if they'll lock that in, you know. They said just pencil it in for the fall, and then they'll just lock it in and pen afterwards, so we'll see how this goes. Anyways, that's my introduction. Um, let's pray. God, thanks so much for today. Thanks for this community and the faithful story you've been telling over many years, much more than 10. God, I think about the people that moved into this community to plant Austin Avenue Chapel years ago. And I think about the promises you put on their heart. And God, I thank you that you have not forgotten those promises. So God, as we approach your word this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate it to us, that you speak to us, God, that you would help us just not get sucked into the, um, the habit of doing church, of just going through the motions. I'm just so tempted to just go through the motions. God, I pray that you would just jar us out of that, that gear and that you would give us humble, receptive hearts and hearts willing to be convicted and even and encouraged and spoken to through your word. And uh, you're welcome here. Of course, you're here, Holy Spirit. Uh, you're, you're wherever, you're in the, living in the hearts of your people. But God, we also pray that you would be more here. More here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a psalm of a guy called Asaph. Asaph wrote 12 of the psalms. Most of the psalms are written by David. David was the king of Israel. He uh, has a really cool past. He's a songwriter. And so worship was a big part of the people of Israel's tradition. Okay, are you with me? So people of Israel, most of the Old Testament is about God's story on planet Earth primarily unfolding through this nation and people called Israel. And worship was a big part of their rhythms. We're a people who are shaped. Do you know that? We are a people who are shaped. You're never not shaped. You are not a neutral human being. You are constantly being shaped by the ideas that you hear, the things that you think about, the rhythm, the physical rhythms of your life, the emotional rhythms of your life. All of these things, they shape us. We are shaped people. And all through human history, there's been an awareness to some degree or another that we're a people shaped. And so one of the re ways that the people of Israel responded to this rea reality that we are a people that are shaped is they would come on regular rhythms, often weekly like this, but there are other weekly rhythms, to the temple to sing songs, to hear scripture read. And so there's a great emphasis placed on the songs that were written because the songs that were, they were, that were written helped the people of God become shaped into an alternative, distinct people living amongst the pressures of this world. And that's still the call on the church today, to be a distinct people living in the midst of a culture around us. Not to hide from culture, not to withdraw from culture, but to be a distinct alternative community. What I love about this church is I walk in the front door, and from the beginning to the end, I'm seeing something that is distinct. Do you know how unique this is to see all these ethnicities in one place singing together? To see all these generations together supported? To not just see like one monolithic form of thought, but to see diversity and expression of thought. This is a very special alternative place. And then when you see people volunteering to help children with no strings attached, that is evidence of a distinct alternative community. When I think about my experience here at Hillside as a high school student, one of the thoughts that I had is, man, there must have been times when people felt as if, oh man, these high school students are really taking over because we were such a presence over here. And, that we're, and, and the song started changing and the way that people talked and all this stuff. And as a high school student, you think everything should revolve around you. So I didn't notice it then. I was just like, of course. In retrospect now, as I'm like lead, trying to help lead a church and we see the influence from one generation, I'm in the conversations where I hear the older congregation saying, what about our old songs? And the youth saying, what about our new songs? And us trying to say, it's, it's awkward, right? When you prefer others over yourself for a bigger vision. But a distinct community does that. They say, we have a bigger vision than having a place like, this is not like a yacht club or like a Sunday like hobby, right? We're trying to do something different. So this vision of a distinct community, the people of God would remind, remind themselves of the story of God often through song. 
And so Asaph was one of the like, chief song leaders under David's leadership in the temple. And so he would write songs in order to do a few things. One of the reasons why they'd write songs is they wanted to remember the story of God. They wanted to remember the story of God. Because in the same way that we are a shaped people, we are a forgetful people. That we can find ourselves so quickly forgetting where we came from. So a lot of the Psalms or a lot of the, the, the different literature in the Old Testament is there to help remember where we came from. That we were once a people in exile and God delivered us. And when we remember God's story that we were once a people in exile and now we've been delivered, it does something in our hearts because it reminds us not just about God's story but also the nature of God who is the deliverer. Because when we remember the story about how God delivered us, we become in touch with the God who is the deliverer. So then when you sing the song about how God delivered you, the great delivering God delivered you while you were in trouble and you're in the midst of chaos. And in this room, there are those of you, you're in the midst of it right now. Just the nature of life in a community like this is that somebody in this room is having the best week of their life right now. And there's others, and this is rock bottom. And when you're at those moments, those are the moments where you often forget. And so you come into a place and you sing songs about the goodness of God. And when you're the person having the best week of your life, you remember, God is the giver of this gift. I didn't earn this on my own, so you don't become arrogant. And when you're at rock bottom, and you think everyone's forgotten me, and God's forgotten me, you sing the song about his goodness and says, he was there for me before. He's the delivering God, and although I can't see it right now, so these songs, they form us. Are you with me? They're, part, they're, they're to, to keep us in touch with what's true about God. And so Asaph gets us into this very unique psalm in Psalm 73 because it's very autobiographical. He lets you into a very personal place. One of the things we see in the psalms that we don't see in modern worship as much is um, honesty. Like massive vulnerability. Like if somebody published a song like some of the songs that David wrote, the kind of things he asked God to do to his enemies. You'd be like, whoa, <laughs> Lincoln, I don't think we should play that song in church easy, but you know what I mean? Like that's, but like, and like a guy like Lincoln, I know just hearing you sing, man, your just heart for worship is beautiful. Those are the songs you sing in private often. Those are the songs you sometimes never make it to public, but you get these honest songs and they would sing them together. And the one that we're reading this morning is a really honest psalm about him giving in to something and you gotta keep in mind, like, this, is, this guy's high up in the temple structure. I mean, he's a song leader. And he's letting us into a moment where he really gave in to something. And he wants us to see the way in which it impacts his life. And so I'm gonna read the whole chapter. And then I'm gonna try to bring some application from it for a time here this morning. I think we have it up here. Starting in verse one, it says this. And I'll pause a few times along the way just to bring some structure. So... Um, we know what's going on here. So he says this, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, so pause for a second. So he's saying, big header statement, I know God's good to Israel, but as for me, he's saying, this is true, but I'm in a unique spot. He goes, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He's saying, I'm on shaky grounds right now. My life is fragile right now. I don't have it together right now. Why? Verse 3, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Who are the wicked? For Asaph writing this, the wicked are those who he would say have no intention or blatantly dishonor God's laws and commandments. And so he might be speaking of people within the people of Israel, but also the nations around. I mean, these were people living in close proximity with people who weren't, you know, wouldn't acknowledge God as God or, or Yahweh as God. And so he says, the wicked are those who are not following the ways of God, okay? And so he's saying, I saw their life and I saw the success that they seemed to have and I wanted it. And that was his slippery ground. He says, right now, I'm, how, on, it's how, how amazing that Asaph is so honest to say, you know what, if I was really honest, I see a lot of people who don't even pretend to live for God, and it seems like they're getting on in life better than I am. You ever been there before? You don't have to put your hand up. 
I've been there before. Envy is like um, breathing. You don't think about it. It's so common. Verse 4, this is what he says. Now check this out. What I want to talk about this morning is the disorienting impact of envy. I want to talk about how it's like um, it skews our vision. That when envy is in our heart, and it so often is, that it actually causes us not to see the world in an accurate way, but in an inaccurate way. So this is what he says. He says of the people who, the wicked, he says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Hear the arrogance. And their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, verse 12. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Verse 13, surely in vain, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. He's saying like, look at these guys. They're getting ahead and I'm over here and I feel like I'm just struggling through life. It must have been a waste. Surely it's been totally worthwhile trying to honor the ways of God. I've been trying to give my life away do the, do the things that God asked me to do, and it must have been a waste. Verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. And he says, if I'd ever spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And then this is, this is the turning point, verse 16 and 17. This is, this is the, the crux. This is the climax. This is the most important line in the psalm. He says this, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. He says, all of it was messy. None of it made sense to me. And then there's this morning where he, ent- there's this moment where he enters the sanctuary of God. And in the old covenant, the sanctuary of God was understood as a physical space where you'd encounter God. What Jesus has done, what Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection, and in the sending of his spirit on the day of Pentecost, was to move our relationship with God from physical spaces to day-to-day life. And so when he says, until I walked in the sanctuary, he's saying, until I found myself in the presence of God, then I understood their final destiny. He's like, oh, then it became clear. He goes, when I was walking before, it troubled me. My focus was just on the things I saw. But when I came into the sanctuary of God, then I saw the big picture. Then it became clear. And then he begins to see clearly. He says, then they understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. Do you see the callback to the first line, the second line, verse two? He says, I thought I was on slippery ground in my envy. And I thought they they were on stable ground. But what I see is that when you don't follow the ways of God, that's slippery ground. It doesn't look like that way. But he goes, when I see it in the brand context of life, when I get perspective, And then he begins to outline what this looks like. Verse 19, how suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes, when you arise, Lord. You will despise them as fantasies, just like the fleeting life of it all. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He's just reflecting on the state of his heart in the midst of this envy. But then he says this, yet I am always with you. This is what happens in the presence of God. You remember, he was with me all along. He didn't leave my side. When I was at my worst, he didn't run away. He was close. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you'll take me. Oh, I love verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. My God is my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You'll destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good for me to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, there are a lot of questions that are raised, and I'm not going to be able to answer all of them, but I want to try to bring our attention to the broader themes and application of this text. This is a text about envy. This is about the disorienting impact of envy in our life, and in contrast, about the the perspective and peace that comes from the presence of God. 
This is a psalm about the disorienting impact of envy, and it is in contrast about the perspective-gaining, peace-delivering implications of the presence of God. The first thing that Asaph wants us to see, verse 2 and 3, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped and almost nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The first thing he wants you to see is that envy is costly. It's slippery ground. Envy is a joy killer. It steals your joy. What is envy? What is it? How would you define it? This is how Tim Keller defines envy. He says, to envy is to want somebody else's life. It's to feel not just that they don't deserve their good life, but that you do, and God hasn't been fair. Envy is that moment when you're looking at somebody else's life, and you want something. There's a desire for it, but it's not just a desire. Because uh, I, I spoke recently on this similar theme, and a really, really thoughtful young adult came up afterwards. He says, hey, like, is it wrong to have ambition in some form of your life? And I say, no. I mean, amb- ambition is one of those words in the English language. It's like, there's, it, I, you say, it depends what you mean by ambition. But like in its purest sense, no. To have dreams or desires? Sure, of course. To, to reorient your life, to make decisions, like I have a goal to, be, to have this career, so I'm going to go into this school to have ambition? No, that's, that's not what this is about. To look at somebody and say, hey, I see something in their life that I admire. Maybe I can learn something from their practices so that I can have that in my life. Sure. But envy goes deeper in our heart and it has a much more sinister result, and it's more common than we think. Because envy calls us to look at somebody's life. You know one of the best diagnoses of envy is? Say, when somebody, are you deep down happy for them? And what's so sinister about my heart, and maybe your heart's not like this, and this is so evil, it's crazy. I can legitimately find some measure of sorrow or negative emotion at other people's success. How is that possible? Envy. There's envy in my heart. They don't deserve that. I think I deserve that. God's not been fair in the distribution. You tracking with me? And envy is like deeper than this idea of like, I want my neighbor's boat. You know what I mean? You could, it could be just that. But that's sometimes what we do, right? Um, we, we like put envy in the same bracket as like, like swearing. Like sure, it's bad, it's not good, but is it really bad, right? You know, when you grow up in Sunday school, you learn all these things like, you know, don't swear, don't sleep around, don't envy, and you put them all in the same category, and then you, like, you try swearing, and you didn't get hit by lightning, you're like, so far, so good, right? And so then you have this, like, running commentary on the things that you learned to trivialize them, and we do that with envy. Some of you have already done that already. It says, well, what's the big deal about envy? Of course. But it... It's this weed that grows up in our heart and sucks the life out of life. What's the opposite of envy? What do you think? Contentment. I love that. Content. Contentedness. I think contentedness is so underrated. Freud um, came to the conclusion that we're pleasure-seeking beings. And under the influence of that psychological framework, there are thousands of well-educated, smart, well-resourced people who spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to make you discontent in your life through advertisements that you see every day. What do marketers need to do to make you buy their product? Make you discontent without it? You know, we're people who are like pleasure-seeking beings. This is what Freud said. I think there's deeper longings in our heart. Frankl, Victor Frankl, who is a contemporary of Freud, he said that, no, we're purpose-seeking beings. And when, we're not, when we don't have purpose, a deeper purpose in life, then we try to numb that desire with pleasure. I think maybe Frankl was more onto something. But I think, that's, I think there's, there's, it's, it's true to the degree that we, we go after pleasure, but pleasure is a cheap knockoff of contentedness. Because, I mean, let's talk about boats for a second. Me and my buddy Joey, a bunch of years ago before I was married, he got like a thousand bucks, bought this boat off Craigslist, and we were through the roof about this thing, right? We're like, oh man, we're going to go out and call it this lake on this boat. 
We're going to rip around, jump in and out of the water on this boat. Maybe we can put a barbecue on the back of this boat. Man, we're just picturing this, right? We load up the boat, and it's ugly. Like, don't get me wrong, but we're pumped. Like, everything about this boat is everything we ever wanted. We load it up on this trailer. We get in the water. A, there, is, there is leaks, but we're able to just, like, it's not a problem. And then all of a sudden, and we're on, we're on call at this lake on this boat. It's large enough. It broke down. It's fine. We knew how to fix it. A little smoke, not a problem. Then we started seeing all the other boats, shinier boats, faster boats. And all of a sudden, I went from being thrilled and grateful to the opposite. Isn't that crazy? I got the thing I wanted. And then I began to see, and it stole the joy, content. The Apostle Paul one time said this, very famous verse is, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You've heard that one before? This is what he says just before that. He goes, man, I have had wealth and poverty. I've been sick and I've been healthy. And I've learned the secret of being content. In all circumstances, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Man, that's full life. I don't know where you're at in your journey with Jesus, but one of the things that Jesus says that he wants to do in our life is bring us full life. And part of that full life is to liberate you from the grip of envy, from the grip of jealousy, from the grip of materialism, and give to you the gift of content. The gospel contentment. What do, you, what do you envy, or maybe the question is more accurately stated, what causes you to envy others? Um, I envy people who don't worry about money ever. I could have unlimited money and still worry about it. It's my mom's fault. <laughs> my dad said Amen. I envy people that don't have pain ever in their body, people who fall asleep quickly. I envy people who are carefree, who have lots of time off, who don't see the world in a complex way. I envy morning people. I envy extroverts who are full of energy. What do you envy? My wife and I were driving home. We spent a week at a camp up in Okanagan, a family camp called Green Bay Bible Camp. I got to be a speaker, and so we got to bring our, fam our kids, and uh, it was a blast. And we're on this beautiful beach on Lake Okanagan, and there's activities and support for our kids. It was just amazing. And um, we're driving home, and she says, you know, because I, I prepared some of my research on this talk for my home church a few weeks ago. She says, what are you speaking on tomorrow? And I said, I'm speaking on Psalm 73 on the theme of envy. And she goes, oh, it's interesting. She says, I've been just thinking about it for the last 30 minutes, you know. We're driving down the Coquihalla, and listening to music. She goes, because all week I've been struggling with envy. She says, I've been looking at other women's bodies on the beach. Their skin's smoother than I am. They're more tan than I am. Their curves are more proportioned in the way that I desire. She says, I just envy. And there's a couple interesting nuances of this conversation because I'm thinking, first of all, how sad I am that my wife is feeling that way, right? You don't have to feel that way. But envy's not logical. Like, could you imagine if I just were smiling? Let me lay this out for you, babe. Like, let me just explain away the envy. No, it's not, it's not happening here. It's here. Right? Like, if I'm like, no, no, you're better looking. Like, like if I could, like, maybe, like, quantify all the good looks and some admit, that wouldn't solve any problems. So that one level, the other level is, it stole her joy. We're on a beach in the Okanagan with our kids, with people helping us watch our kids. And if you're a parent with three kids, like, guys, that, that's as good as it gets right now. <laughs> and it steals the joy of the moment. Because envy says, if you had their life, you'd be happy. If you had all this but their body, then you'd be happy, right? And then she said this. She's a better Christian than I am. She's a little more serious when it comes to the Lord. Um, one of the most liberating things, by the way, that I learned recently is that pastors aren't the most spiritual, godly people in the room. Do you guys know that? Some of you guys know that, but you like chuckle about, oh yeah, we know. <laughs> Anyways, that's a side note. She goes, and it's sin. She goes, it's envy, she's at sin that I've been envying. And I was thinking, oh babe, like, whoa, don't be so hard on yourself, sin, babe. Like, and this is why she said it's sin. She says, because it doesn't honor God, and it steals the full life 
that he wanted to give me. I don't want to die. There's a bigger conversation to have about sin than we have time to have right now. But when God says something is sin, it is often because whether you see it or not, when you have it in your life, it ultimately steals from you the full life that God wants for you. Like you say, like, oh, why can't I do these things or have this fleeting um, experience? But it's because the Lord in his sovereignty, he knows. Envy steals from you. What, you put anything in that place. You might be wrestling right now with, is God really telling the truth when it comes to this or this? Can you really call that sin? I think it's helpful for us to move it through this framework of God wants what's best for us. John 10, 10, he says, I've come to bring you full life. And envy steals full life. So in that way, it's sin. It doesn't honor God, and it's not the life he wants us to live because it steals from us fullness of life. And so she called it that. I don't know what you envy. Other people's looks, their personality, their humor, their wit, or their charm, the experiences that other people have, their adventures, their vacations, the friends that they have, their popularity, and all these things. You tell yourself, man, if I had friends like they had, if I had a career like they had, if I had a family like they had, whether it's health or their connections or their faith in Jesus or their character or their age, whatever it might be, what causes you to envy? And it's crazy. Like, think about age for a second. When you're young, you say, man, 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 if I could just be... 21. Man, if I could just be 30, <laughs> life would be good. And when you're 30, you're like, oh my goodness, what did I do during my undergrad? Those are the best years of my life, and I wasted them. If I could be 17 again, you know? If I could be 18 again, those are the best years. So when you're old, you want to be young. When you're young, you want to be old, and you idealize the other. You say, oh, they're, they've got no problems, right? That's the words of the psalmist. They're carefree. And when, so when you're young, you say, when you're old, I'll be carefree, right? And when you're old, you say, when I was young, I was carefree, right? And I want to be very sensitive here because these are real issues. So please, please forgive me if, if, if I'm treading over some of this stuff. Like even around work, you think, man, if I had a better a more, a job with more prominence, then I'd be happier. So you look at people who are like more senior in your organization. Say, if I had that type of job, I'd be happier. And then when you have that type of job, you say, man, I miss the good old days when I could just go home. No, the nine to five didn't take home work, work, work home with me, you know? Didn't have everybody answering me for asters. And you begin to tell yourself, when you don't have kids, you say, if I had kids, all my problems would be solved. Then you have kids and you're like, whoa, that's a lot of problems, you know? And when you're single, you tell yourself that when I'm married, everything will be fine. And when you're married, you remember, man, it was easier in some ways when I was single. And envy begins to tell you the story. And you see how envy can rip apart marriages? You see how envy can convince moms or dads to walk away from their kids? because they idealize another world. Contentedness in all circumstances. Um, he gives us some nuance on envy, some really clever nuance. So for, for example, verse 14, he says this. He says, all day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. One of the first things that he helps us understand, that Asaph helps us understand that envy does, is it, it causes us to see our world through a dark lens. And this isn't just envy we're talking about this morning. You can sub so many things in this place. But envy, for example, causes us to see our life through negative glasses. Like, for example, there may be real challenges in your life right now, but there's also real blessing and real joy. And when you envy and you conclude that, man, that person over there, I envy them because they don't have this affliction in their life. And so for Asaph, you know how he feels through the lens of envy? Every morning there's new affliction. Every day brings new punishment. There's no hope. There's no silver lining. There's no joy. And man, your family and my family in the last five years have been through stuff. And in the midst of the stuff you've been through, God has brought goodness to your life. And I've seen how I can be in the midst of something and only see the afflictions and conclude that if I had anyone else's life, I'd be better and miss all of the joy that God has brought about you. I'm not trying to make light of your afflictions, but envy says that's all you've got. That's the first layer. Second layer of nuance, verse 4 and 5 and 12. He says this, about those he's envying. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They always go on amassing wealth. Is there anyone, Dr. Kevin Slater, have you met anyone that has no illness, no sickness, no afflictions in the body? No way. 
Everyone. How about the Kardashians? Do they ever have a broken heart? Are they ever sick? Yes. Yes. But Envy says, this is what the wicked are like. The, the, per, the family you envy, they've got nothing wrong. They're perfect. It's like they're never sick, free from any common human burden. And it's a lie. It's a distorted view. Envy caused us to be disoriented. And this is pre-social media. A little historical fact for you guys there. <laughs> Look, read that in a commentary this week. And this is pre now think about this for a second. This is, ASAP is seeing everyone around me free from common burdens, never sick, carefree life. This is before social media. What happens on social media? People post their best moments. Guys, we've had a horrible day at the park before, my family. You think we're posting that on Facebook? <laughs> like, we're fighting in the car. We forgot to pack a blanket. We're, our, my butt's wet. My kids are crying the whole time. And then we matter to muster up one decent picture. That goes on Facebook. Super great day at the park. And you just had a horrible day at the park with your family. And then you look at my family, and you go, man, the Ballards, they, they, their family's perfect. Wrong. <laughs> People take 50 pictures of themselves. They post the most flattering. They edit it. They put a filter on it. And then you're comparing your worst to their highlight reels. And we find ourselves envying their life. Those people, those celebrities, whoever they might be, free from common ills, never sick, no problem. And then what's interesting, if we do... Well, let me just give one layer, other layer of, of, of nuance. The other thing that we do is we idealize. We idealize. And so what we might say is, okay, so the Kardashians, sure, they get sick. For those that don't know who the Kardashians are, just, they're famous people, it doesn't matter. Sure, they get sick, Ballard. Sure, they have heartache. But if I had that much money, I wouldn't care. Right? We do that. We do that all the time. We just sort of, and what, what have you done? What, what power do we give money? You turn it into a god. You just gave god-like powers to wealth. And this is what we believe all the time. Man, if I just had those, that health or those looks, I wouldn't care about all the other issues. Yeah, 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 sure, there's other issues. But if I just had that, and then you take that thing, and then you idealize it, and you give it godlike powers, powers to heal, powers to overcome issues in your life, to soothe you, to calm you, to give you hope and a future. And this is the other thing. We idealize it. Why? Because our hearts were made to worship. Our hearts are pre, I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus or not, but the Christian worldview would argue that your heart is preconditioned, that it's in its nature is to worship God above all things. But if, if we don't worship God above all things, our heart is wired to find something to worship. And that's why envy is so common, because it's connected to our heart's desire to worship something above all things. And so we turn to these different things, and here's how I know that envy is not about that thing. It's not about the boat. It's not about good looks. It's not about money. It's not about the job. It's not about having kids or not. It's about your heart. Because you, once you've gotten that thing that you longed for, and it didn't satisfy, and your heart moved on to another thing, you got the wife of your dreams. You finally had kids. You finally earned that income you were after. And you got that thing, and then your heart moved on to another thing. And so this is a heart condition, not a thing condition. It's not about X. It's not about Y. It's about a deeper thing in our heart. And Augustine used... Let me, let me come to Augustine in a second. This is about value hierarchies. Whenever we envy, it's because there's a disordered value hierarchy in our heart. Let me explain what I mean by value hierarchy. We all have value hierarchies. For example, let me just give you an example of a value hierarchy and then ha what happens when it gets disordered. Follow me for a second. You might say, I value my most important relationships over wealth. So my relationship with my spouse or my kids or my closest friends over my wealth, okay? Value hierarchy, one thing's more important than the other. Are you tracking with me? Has that value hierarchy ever gotten disordered before in human history? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> what happens when you value wealth over your relationships? 
over your kids, over your spouse, over your friends. Businesses destroy friendships at times. Work, our addiction to work can rob us from a relationship with the people we love the most. And you can put any number of things in this place. And so I want to show you that to illustrate two things. One is we have a value hierarchy. We all do. You do. I, I don't know your value hierarchy, but you operate. You do. You operate with a value hierarchy. And then there's a stated value hierarchy that we have. If I, if I surveyed you and you laid it out, right? And there's a stated value hierarchy. And then there's, there's actual value hierarchy. That if somebody followed you around and observed your action, that would define what you actually value more than others. Are you with me? Stated. If it was a quiz on a test, what do you value more? Of course, God first, and then my family, and then my career, and way down here is money. But in real life, what's the actual value hierarchy? So Augustine says this. He says, he has this idea of disordered loves. And I think these are deeply connected ideas. He talks about disordered loves, and he talks about how the heart is made to love. And that when we take something that could even be a good gift, like kids, or meaningful work, or career, or a relationship, or creative idea, and we take that thing that you love, and you make it your chief love, everything goes out of order. Disordered loves. He says the only way for us to have a healthy love relationship with all of these things is to make Christ our chief love. This is what Jesus says through John in Revelations to his letter to Ephesus. I have this one thing against you. You've forgotten your first love. That we're made to make Christ the chief affection of our heart. The affection above all other affections. And that when he's our chief affection, it can bring contentedness to all of these things. You see money as a secondary or third, aspiration in your life? Sure. If serving God is your number one, you say, yeah, I want to make money to impact people's life, great. But if that thing's taken away from you, or I want to have a healthy body because I want to serve my family and serve my friends, but what happens when you can't control your health? No amount of supplements or fitness can keep you well. What happens then? I can still be content. When it's your ultimate thing, your world falls apart. Your, whatever, your talent, your career, your looks, whatever the thing is, man, if it's a third or fourth ambition in your life, it can become, but if Christ is your chief affection, it reorients things in its right order. You begin to see things clear, but when he's not the chief affection of your heart. And so in the language of value hierarchy, the most valuable thing in our life must be God. The thing that we put as the chief value, the chief affection, the chief thing that we're after. It's a deeper issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart wired to be after God. Jesus ends up in this conversation with a guy who was rich and wealthy, and the guy has a sense of desperation. He throws himself at Jesus' feet, and he says, what must I do to have like, life to the full and eternal life? Jesus says, sell everything you've got. Get rid of it all, and just come follow me. And it says that the man went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, he loved God, but not more than wealth. And Jesus isn't saying, in order to prove your love for me, you've got to sell your stuff to follow me. He says, you'll never know the full life that I have for you unless I'm your chief affection. So relinquish your grip on the thing that has that, that primary state of affection in your heart so that I can become the chief affection of your heart. Verse 17, the good part. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. In the sanctuary of God, he comes to this conclusion. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. He comes into the sanctuary of God. He says, oh, none of this compares to you. There's nothing in heaven or earth that even holds a candle to you. And most of the time, we don't live like that. It's so, I just, the blinders come in. So we have to cultivate habits and rhythms in our life that cause us to enter the presence of God and get perspective and peace. So all of this troubled me until I entered the presence of God. I want to talk about three rhythms in lightning speed. The rhythm of attending church weekly the rhythm of daily prayer, and the rhythm of practicing his presence. The rhythm of attending church weekly. 
God's not mad at you when you miss church. Do you know that? I don't think he's mad at you at all, but if he is mad at you, it's not about church attendance. I promise. God doesn't get mad when we skip church. Going to church isn't something that we do to earn God's approval. It doesn't bring about good karma. But it's good for you. It's good for your soul. Remembering the story of God. Coming into a place and hearing these songs sing and the scripture read and seeing people of different shapes and sizes and income brackets and different parts of life enjoying the goodness of God in different ways, lifting each other's burdens, it reorients your thinking. It changes your mindset. It helps you see clear. All week, thousands of ads this week. Thousands, not dozens, thousands of ads designed by expert marketers to make you discontent and tell you a story contrary to the story of God. And then once a week we come in it, perspective. Money doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Finding the perfect spouse won't solve your problems. Getting a certain job isn't as life-changing as you hope. It's not an ultimate thing. But everything tells us that. Sexual gratification, a moment. Everything tells you. You know what you need? Pursue sexual pleasure, liberty, freedom. Overrated. That's the story you're constantly being told, but once a week we come in. We have this weird habit, I don't know about you guys, maybe not at this church, but I know amongst my own church and other churches that I'm part of, of like trying to decide if church was good or not that Sunday. You know what I mean? How was church today? Well, worship, eight out of 10, solid eight out of 10. You know? The hosting, parts of it good. (laughs) Right? The sermon, bit spastic, six and a half out of 10, right? Like whatever it is, right? We just... We just measure it, and we say, was church good this, and it's just just silly, okay? The real question, is it good for you? Not, was it good for you? Like, oh, it wasn't good for me. No, no, was it good for you? Like, is it good for your soul? And the answer is yes, like whether you had emotional high or not, whether you clicked with the sermon or not, whether they sang your favorite song or not, it's good for you. It reminds you. Daily rhythms, that's weekly rhythms, daily rhythms, finding time in your day to connect with God. Finding time just to remember what is true. If you have one minute, one minute a day, this is what I think you should do. Before you walk out the door in the morning, maybe it's in the shower, and if you have more than a minute, take it, but if you have just a minute, open up your palms before God and say, God, my default position is to live as somebody who has to earn approval and acceptance. But God, I know I'm loved by you and I'm accepted by you. And everything around me is gonna tell me that I need something else to be happy, but you are all I need. Help me today to live as one who's loved and who finds their portion in you. Amen. To reorient yourself. Man, if you have more time every day to be in the word, yeah, grow in those disciplines. Absolutely, the word reformats your mind. Prayer, reminding yourself what is true, to hear his voice. But not, this isn't this religious thing. You don't pray to earn God's approval. You have it in Christ. He's head over heels about you. But these, these daily rhythms of reorienting your thinking around God, and then moment to moment practicing the presence of God. God's closer than I think. God's not far, he's close. And so if you're in a boardroom, and somebody makes a comment that strikes your ego and makes you want to puff up, say, no, God's close, and I don't have to puff up to prove a point. I'm accepted by him. When you're tempted to pursue busyness instead of generosity of spirit, no, he's given me everything I need. I can let it go. Practicing his presence, he's with me. God is with me. God, your presence is here. You're my portion. You're my portion. The presence of God, it brings perspective and it brings peace to our life. God wants um, you to have full life. The beginning of full life is remembering that we are his treasure that before we had a conversation this morning about making him our treasure, he made you his treasure. He made you, and he loved you, and he gave himself for you. And when we see that we're his treasure, it melts our heart. The beginning of worship, the beginning of obedience always starts by remembering the true story that we're his treasure, 
that God is good and he pursues us and he's for us. And it melts our heart and it frees us from the constant striving. It frees us to give our lives away. Envy stops us from giving. Envy is a generosity killer because we constantly have to live under this idea that I earn this, I deserve it, I deserve more. He says, no, when you're free, I'm content, I can give it all away. I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. You're free to be present in the moment. You're free to have joy. Lincoln's gonna, do you wanna do a song or do you wanna, I know I've gone a bit long. It's up to you, I would love the song as response and then you can, I'll just end with a quick story as you just prepare to play that song. I've been thinking so hard about how to end this talk and I don't have like a tight ending. Just this one story, or a picture even, that has helped me reconcile these ideas. And it's, um, it's interesting actually, because I first met this girl, Crystal, a lot of years ago when I was attending this church and started hanging out at the church I now work at, CLA in Langley. She was a 15-year-old girl, and um, at this camp that we're going to today, she, God, when she was 16, God gave her a song about God being her comfort. She wrote the song, it's beautiful. I have, her, I have a recording of it. It's just a beautiful song about God being comfort. And one of the things is like, one of the lines is, he won't let me drown in the raging waters. Lean on the Lord. He is my only hope. Two months after camp, she was diagnosed with cancer. 16 years old, spent the next year in and out of the hospital. And just the six, seven years, the way that chemo ravaged her body. She was given like a year to live. God did some miraculous stuff in her life and we live in just such an amazing part of the world with such access, such good treatment and she's still alive today and cancer free. And... But 16 years old, when she was allowed out of the hospital, she would come to our youth group on Tuesday nights and I just have this picture of this 16-year-old girl, no hair on her head from the chemo, hands in the air, worshiping God. And I just think about how much looks and the thought of an infinite health and infinite future mean to a teenager. And there's this beautiful 16-year-old girl just doesn't give a rip what the guys in the room think. Isn't trying to control her future, arms in the air, worshiping God. And I think she's learned the secret. She's learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. To worship God, the presence of God bringing perspective in the midst. And so I see this girl in the midst of chemotherapy, her, to, her, to, her whole future compromised, worshiping God, singing songs to Jesus. And we can have this, this, like pity in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but there can be a condescending pity. There's a healthy pity where you want to help and compassion, there can be a condescending pity. And I just think we don't need to pity people who struggle. Have you ever been on a missions trip? where you meet people who don't have all the luxury we have and that they're full of joy, don't pity them. How can they worship God when they have nothing? Don't pity them. They figured it out. They're more free than we sometimes are. Man, do we want to help? Yes. Should we give our resources? Yes. Should we come alongside people like Crystal? Yes. But is she ignorant? Should we pity her? No way. No way. Let me pray. God, thanks so much that you're better than health, that you're better than wealth that you're better than anything this world can offer. And God, I just pray that that would be true in our hearts this morning. God, I just admit that my heart so quickly gives into envy, to jealousy, or whatever it might be, an idolization with the things of this world. And God, I just pray um, by your Holy Spirit that you'd come and that you would remind our hearts of your goodness, of your goodness. I just want to take a moment just as the piano plays before we start singing, just to give a minute. I think the Holy Spirit's obviously here. He's just doing business with people. And so if we just have a, a minute, Holy Spirit, would you just come and just minister to hearts? There's a way the Holy Spirit comes and he does like heavy, deep work in our heart. And it's, our default is sometimes to push it away because we're afraid it's gonna hurt. But no, he's like a good heavenly father and he just wants to, he wants to liberate us. And he just wants to just remind ourselves of his goodness and maybe draw his attention to some things that might have grabbed our affection. And we don't have to be afraid. It's not a condemning finger. He's not pointing his finger at you. It's, it's a loving father trying to lead you to full life. Say, oh, that thing, that thing, it's, it's not going to do what you thought it would do for you. So Holy Spirit, would you just come? Would you just, just take a moment?
Maybe you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, and this morning you want to make him your chief treasure. The good news of the gospel is that he made you his treasure before you did a good thing. That's the message of grace, that Christ died for you. He removed the barriers between us and God so he could come and live in our heart. And so this morning, if you want to give your life to Jesus, why don't you just pray, Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and live in my heart. I know I don't deserve it because of any good thing that I've done, but I put my faith in what you've done for me, Jesus. I don't necessarily understand it fully, but I, I believe that through your life, your death, and your resurrection, that you made it possible for me to have a relationship with you. And so this morning, I just received that gift of relationship with you by faith. We're just going to sing a verse and a chorus together, and then Lincoln's going to dismiss you. Um, thanks, Jason, so much for sharing God's word with us today. Um, as usual, if you'd like to receive prayer, you can feel free to come on forward. Um, and we have folks here that would be happy to pray with you. And uh, there are refreshments in the back, too, of course, that you can take advantage of. Um, but for now, uh, please remain standing and receive the benediction. And the blessing I want to offer you is just this. As you go from this place, that the God of all grace would grant you grace to be content in all things that he would give you grace to look to him and in looking to him to be radiant. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Be blessed.